2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, I'll be speaking with Jonathan Brunstead, Assistant Professor of History at Texas A&M University, about his new book, The Soviet Myth of World War II, Patriotic Memory in the Russian Question in the USSR. It's published by Cambridge University Press. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Doug. Great to be here. Great, and for uh, maybe a bit of disclosure, I should say that I did my PhD at Texas A&M, but I finished right before you uh, you arrived.
1: Yes, we had we had the chance to meet very briefly, but uh, 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 yeah.
2: So, um, could you begin by telling the listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to this topic?
1: Sure. Uh, well, I'm a historian, and, and as you said, assistant professor at, at AM. and uh, I'm originally from Southern California, but grew up in a small uh, sort of mountain town uh, in Northern Arizona. And perhaps, perhaps you, Doug, and many of your listeners remember the the late Cold War 1980s film uh, Red Dawn. Uh, but I, I often describe my hometown as being uh, like the, the town that was that the Soviets invaded uh, in, in the movie Red Dawn. Uh, in fact, I remember after seeing that film uh, in, in theaters. Uh, now, I was certainly way too young uh, to be seeing this film uh, 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 in the movies. I was like six or seven, you know, but it was it was the 1980s and, and there were no rules back then. Uh, but in any case, I recall being sort of inundated with uh, the culture and media of the, the, the Reagan era Cold War. Uh, so films like like Rocky IV, Rambo, you know, especially the third one where he single handedly uh, leads the Mujahideen and defeats the Soviets, uh, and, and of course uh, uh, Red Dawn. And, and I sometimes show my my students the, these uh, clips from these these movies. Uh, and for example, Red Dawn, uh, I show them this clip of the in the opening of the film, in which Soviet paratroopers uh, sort of launch an all out assault on this small town high school. And uh, soldiers they attack in the middle of the day for some reason, and they proceed to fire rocket launchers and ak forty sevens indiscriminately into this uh, school uh, it's It's cartoonishly violence, uh, and, and my students usually respond with you know with laughter uh, at the absurdity uh, at the absurdity of it all uh, but but one thing I try to convey to them is that, as a child growing up in a town very similar to the one depicted in the film. Uh, Red Dawn felt entirely realistic uh, to my childhood self, uh, kind of in, in the distorted view of, of my youth. Uh, you know, it, informed as I was by such cultural uh, depictions, the Soviet Union was above all things concerned with destroying the American way of life, and socialism uh, in all of its manifestations constituted an, an intrinsic evil. Now, by contrast, every foreign policy move that the United States made at this time, I, I sort of saw as an intrinsic good, uh, and I should say that pretty much I wasn't alone here. Pretty much everyone in in, in my town thought this way. Uh, like parents would let us us as kids go out and play with 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 real guns without supervision, and this was partly inspired by by movies like Red Dawn. Like we got to be ready if if the Soviets ever arrive. It, even after the USSR collapsed, you know, into the nineteen nineties. Uh, and the Cold War was at an end. you know elements of this kind of cold War mentality stay stayed with me and indeed, uh, even today, uh, many of my students espouse some version of this mentality, uh, w- which of course informs an important strand of of political thought in the United States as well it, it wasn 't until very late in high school and especially college, when I first studied these things in any depth that I came to understand that the Soviet Union like the United States, was the product of, you know, complex social, political, and geopolitical forces, that its political system and its ideology and and even its antagonistic relationship with the United States could be understood and explained as a response to very specific historical circumstances, Uh, that there was, you know, a a, a disconnect uh, between, for example, the aims of revolutionary socialists in the early 20th century, and this authoritarian system uh, that emerged in the wake of uh, in Russia in the wake of 1917. So I ultimately dropped what my college specialization was it was ancient history and chose to focus on you know Russian Soviet Eastern European history in graduate school, partly because it so profoundly challenged uh, these long-held Cold War perceptions.
2: Very fascinating. I think, I mean, I was a child of the late 80s, but uh, I think the Cold War was definitely still permeating my life when I was growing up as well. Um, so what made you specifically f- focus on the topic of World War II and the myth of of the Soviet war? Yeah,
1: You know, I was never really a big sort of World War II aficionado or anything like that. Despite the fact that I grew up under the spell of, of America's own national myth of World War II, you know, the Good War, the Greatest Generation, uh, and, and so on, what I've always been interested in, though, is how societies kind of represent, embellish, or repurpose uh, past wars for present uh, presentist, uh, often political purposes. So, in fact, when I was younger, I was kind of turned off by by World War II. Uh, I always found it, you know, not Exhilarating or anything, but but depressing uh, uh, as a subject. Uh, Part of this is because, as a child, sort of learning about the Holocaust for the first time, I could never uh, separate uh, that event or or mass killing of civilians more generally from the war narrative itself. As I think a lot of people do and and can. Uh, You know, my dad, a a lover of movies like me, introduced me to, to. Films like like Patton, you know, with George C. Scott, uh, for example, a, a great film, a film I I, I like a lot. Um, but it, even during that film, I, I remember as a kid, uh, you know, one of Patton's rousing speeches. I remember thinking, okay, so so this would have been you know around November 1942. This is a great patriotic speech, but but aren't masses of women and children being slaughtered at this time on the Eastern Front? You know, I, I can never separate the heroic from the tragic, or, or I guess my own mythologized view of the war from its its sort of grim reality. And, and I think this is one of the things that drew me to, to war memory a, a, as a subject. Um, so for someone studying the Soviet Union uh, in grad school, this, this, this multi-ethnic society, uh, which in, in its own way was under a, a much grander myth of World War II, or the Great Patriotic War, as, as it's known, there. uh, This seemed like a natural place to turn uh, for dissertation research and then uh, this eventual book.
2: Right. So uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, your book in the title is called The Soviet Myth. So what is the Soviet Union? You kind of mentioned this multiracial empire. So could you talk a little bit about the, you know, how the Soviet Union worked with all these different nationalities within it, including the big one, which is Russia?
1: Yeah, so I mean so by Soviet myth, of course, I I mean uh that that version of the war narrative, that the war's memory that was officially endorsed and promoted uh by the Soviet state, which was this vast uh multi ethnic multinational uh state. Um so the, the 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 and I can sort of get into, you know, how it was structured, uh, but, but I'll just say the term myth uh is of course much more complicated and in fraud. Uh, and I should say, as I make try to make very clear in the introduction of the book, that that I I, I mean myth here not as it's often used uh, to suggest an untrue story or, or falsity, uh, but rather in a sociological sense to mean narratives uh, uh, that reflect and promote kind of shared beliefs and ideas about the past, and these narratives help a public or a society. Understand both its past, but also by implication its present and even even its future uh, So myths have an identity shaping feature to them uh, uh, That they're neither good nor bad uh, on their own it, It's it's how they're sort of deployed and, and used uh, But they do play an important role in the way societies uh, Understand that, understand themselves so that, that that's how I mean
2: myth mm-hmm. so uh... One of the things that comes out in the introduction is the idea of the Russian question. What is the Russian question in the USSR?
1: Right. So in, in the context in which I, I use it, I mean the Russian question uh, being the question over the place of the Russian people, uh, their history and culture within a larger supranational state. Uh, so in the 19th century, for example, there were questions about how closely the czarist state... Uh, or the royal family should, should identify directly with the Russian nation. Uh, after all, this was a, a multinational empire, and other empires experienced this too. So, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example, had a sort of German question: how closely should the uh, uh, imperial family identify with with uh, 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 German, the German-speaking public? You know, and, and so there was this German question. And Franz Joseph, they created this cult around him that, that could be sort of inclusive and and, and multi-ethnic, and, and so on uh but this Russian question was very important for for the early Bolsheviks who wanted to present the u s s r as a renunciation of the old Russian imperial order after all, this was a revolutionary marxist leninist society, and Russians were the former oppressor nation so what relevance can our, can like i don't know a, a Russian national poet like Pushkin or a Russian military generals or czars uh from the the pre revolutionary past? what relevance do they have for Soviet society? That, that's the Russian question. And the answer to the Russian question uh, changes over time. So Lenin and the early Bolsheviks, of course, uh, in an attempt to, to kind of depoliticize national identity and, and facilitate trust between Russians and non-Russians uh, of the former empire, they actually introduced measures uh, that positively discriminated Uh, against the state's ethnic Russian core. So in the cultural sphere, this meant the the denigration of czarist military heroes and Russian literary icons. But at an institutional level too, the Bolsheviks denied the Russian people their own communist party, uh, their own academy of sciences and state security service and, and so on. And while this encouraged Russians to more closely identify with kind of central all union institutions, uh, and thus territorially with the USSR as a whole, the the objective was to hamstring Russian cultural and political nationalism. And this is something that both Lenin and Stalin initially identified as the greater threat than the sort of local quote unquote nationalisms of non-Russian peoples. Uh, and, and this, of course, aggravated Russian nationalists or Russophile intellectuals, uh, kind of further alienating them from the Soviet project. Uh, but but this question never goes away. Stalin, of course, uh, uh, began to reintroduce select elements of the Russian past and culture into Soviet propaganda during the 1930s. And this uh, tendency was actually elevated to new heights uh, during World War II. Right. So
2: what... Um... Is this multi ethnic empire? What sort of myths, images, themes did they draw on during the war for propaganda purposes?
1: Well, almost immediately you see an intensification of this Russian national, quasi nationalistic uh propaganda and this is especially during in the year 1941 so the germans invade june june 22nd 1941 uh, almost immediately you see a, a huge outpouring of uh this kind of uh russian you know nationalistic russo-centric propaganda uh just for for example uh, in november 1941 stalin delivers a famous uh address uh, to the soviet people there on red square in which he calls on the Soviet people; these are soldiers marching off to the fronts. Of course, the speech was reprinted at the newspaper and so on. But he calls on Soviet people to find inspiration in pre-revolutionary Russian and proto-Russian heroic figures like Alexander Nevsky, uh, Dmitry Donskoy, Minin and Pajarsky, Kutuzov, uh, and so on. Uh, also, during during the war, the Russian Orthodox Church is partly restored. The Communist International, Common Turn, uh, is shut down, um, but there's really a diversity of, of themes and, and imagery that are deployed throughout the war, especially after 19 uh, after 1942. So, with the victory at Stalingrad, when victory seemed like a more and more certain uh, outcome of the war uh, from the Soviet perspective there were ideological debates uh, within the party about how are we going to uh, understand this war how are we going to explain this war and very early on the decision you know from 1943 on there is a shift back to more sort of orthodox Marxist-Leninist uh, patriotic themes. So the idea of Lenin, the idea of 1917 as a kind of revolutionary break, heroes from the Russian Civil War uh, that happened you know, in, in the immediate post-revolutionary years. Uh, all of these themes uh, really come back, and there's a great emphasis by 1944 on the fact that this impending victory is going to be due to the soviet system uh of course to the leadership of the communist party and especially stalin uh and and so so these sort of more orthodox soviet and some some uh, uh, since Marxist Leninist themes, patriotic themes really come back and, and they were, they were never completely, uh, uh, done away with during the war. So there was a whole huge, as I call it kind of kitchen sink patriotism. They threw all these different diverse themes and images to try to mobilize this vastly diverse population. Uh, by the end of the war, you get this move back towards these more orthodox kind of Soviet, uh, uh, themes, uh, patriotic themes and images. And this, then something happens on May 24th, 1945. This is just about two weeks after the end of the war in Europe is over. Stalin delivers a very famous toast uh, to uh, members of the Red Army, leaderships of the Red Army and Navy and, and you know, key officials from the party and so on uh, in, in the Kremlin, in which he declares as part of this toast that the Russian people were the decisive force in the defeat of, of, of fascism. And, and this, this toast is, of course, reprinted the next day in Pravda, and it quickly, it quickly becomes a major sort of ideological line in understanding the war, that the Russian people, above all others, deserve credit uh, for the victory.
2: Right. So does this uh, create tension then between like, how people are remembering the war right after it? Or
1: Yeah, so perhaps the, the biggest consequence uh, of Stalin's toast to the Russian people uh, was that it forced post-war ideologists and propagandists and, and historians and journalists and artists uh, to try to reconcile uh, this obvious Russo-centrism that was in Stalin's toast with all of these other competing messages uh, that, that that were present uh, you know, throughout the war and especially late in the war, right? So you've got, on the one hand, what would I say? There's two different uh, dominant versions of the war by, 1940, by 1945. On the one hand, you have this line that very, matches up quite nicely with Stalin's toast. It was the Russian people that led this war, uh, and they drew on their, pre, their thousand years of history, their thousand years of military victories and triumphs and, and, and greatness. Uh, and, and that this is really – the war is merely a continuation of this thousand-year through line. This is what I call the, the Russo-centric uh, paradigm this sort of Russo-centric, Russian-dominated version of the war. But the other uh, version of the war, this kind of Soviet narrative, I call it a pan-Soviet narrative. This version argued that the sources of victory were all post-revolutionary right they were they were uh uh victory was credited to the establishment of the soviet system to the sort of multi ethnic harmony the brotherhood between uh, uh the friendship uh, between peoples uh, and so on and, and actually this this narrative downplays russian leadership uh, to a great extent and it's it's quite hostile actually to pre-revolutionary patriotic motifs and so on. And so this narrative I call an internationalist uh, paradigm or pan-Soviet paradigm. Uh, these are the two dominant paradigms, this russo and, and pan-Soviet version of the war myth. And they competed for uh, primacy uh, in these immediate immediate. Post-war years, so this is the tension that ideologues during these years are working with, and nothing is is formalized about the existence of these competing paradigms uh, uh, until much later. The point is they kind of coexisted in Soviet public culture, political culture, uh, in these uh, post-war post-war years, and so that's where the tension really is.
2: And this kind of tension was able to exist throughout the rest of Stalin's life. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So uh, yes, that's right. So under Stalin, uh, you know, a given uh, ideologue or or a propagandist, or you know, if you're writing a a short history of the war, something like this, you could you have uh, competing versions. So you have depending sort of on the predilections of these of the ideologue in question, um, you have people doing either the Russocentric version or the Pan Soviet version. Very rarely do you get them kind of blending them into a cohesive ideological kind of fusion, uh, and this is this is kind of uh, what the, the the dominant I think historiographical view has been to date. But I kind of show how there was real tension between these two narratives, and only rarely were they ever kind of fused into anything uh, that, that was cohesive uh, uh, force. But in the sort of late Stalinist era after the war, yes, you have these competing uh, images. Um but you know this 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 late stalinist myth of the war it's long been argued that really the war kind of disappears from view during these years uh because uh the country had to rebuild you know sort of resting on its laurels was was frowned upon uh, you know, there's evidence that that you know, well, Stalin did not want people writing memoirs about their experiences of the war. You know, there, there was too much kind of baggage uh, from a negative perspective that could be uncovered. And so, the traditional view of this has been that well, the war kind of disappears from view a, a, as a theme. In fact, what what I discovered uh, in researching this book was that the war never goes away. In fact, it's ubiquitous, right? So. There may, there may have been, you know, not many major war memorials that were established during these years, but the rhetoric, there were countless uh, competitions for war memorial designs. How are we going to commemorate this, this, this memorial? And, and this was promoted by the Soviet state. So there, was an act, there were efforts to try to constantly think about how to commemorate this war, but for various reasons, not, most of these giant war memorial projects never, never saw the light of day. But there were also, you know, uh, important war films, uh, although they these kind of decline uh, as the 1940s turns into the 1950s um but where where does the war go well this the war's commemoration really goes into the workplace itself. The war's the war myth is channeled into the task of rebuilding the country. So within the workplace, so it, it, it's often pointed out that in 1947 Victory Day uh, becomes a uh, goes from being a non-working national holiday to a regular work day when people are going back back to work. That's true, but they still celebrated Victory Day, in fact that entire week. So in the workplace you have Competition about who can produce the most uh, steel, or who can who can produce. I have one candy manufacturer who can produce the most candy. Uh, in in honor of the victory over uh, over Germany, and so uh, uh, this and this is all surrounding rhetoric of, of the war, um, and also the war is channeled into waging ideological cold war. So the, the war theme, the World War II theme, is there in as the cold war begins to take shape. And so what I argue in uh, what I argue is during these years you you have this sort of internationalist pan-soviet narrative eventually winning out because of the cold war. Uh, Soviet monitors of, of foreign media were aware that uh, in, in the United States, in Great Britain, in France, uh, people were never de- denied the fact that the Russian people played an outsized role. In fact, they argued that that really the the Soviet state, this this uh, Marxist-Leninist state, had to rely on traditional Russian patriotism because nobody was willing to fight for fight for uh, Leninism or, or you know or so on. And so, this was never in question in the West. When Soviet uh, uh, monitors begin picking this stuff up, they, there's a sound of an alarm, and they say, Well, we need to push back against this idea that it was the Russian people and their history that, that led to victory. No, no, it was the Soviet system. It was the leadership of the Communist Party and Stalin. So, this pan Soviet narrative becomes very important in the late Stalin uh, years uh, as part of ideological Cold War, in addition to rebuilding the country. And the last thing I'll say about this late Stalin years is that Stalin's personal role is greatly magnified uh, during these late Stalinist years. So it becomes part of Stalin's cult. Uh, And so famously, the 1949 film, The Fall of Berlin, for example, Stalin, at the end of the film, shows up in Berlin. He's getting disembarking from an airplane, and crowds of multinational Soviet peoples uh, are are cheering him on, as well as POW, former POWs, and, and veterans uh, from the United States, from France, from Britain, and so on. So Stalin, uh, his late sort of Stalin cult, kind of uh, subsumes the war myth uh, uh, beneath his larger cult of the Generalissimo. Um, uh, and, and so these are some of the innovations that that uh, uh, the war myth goes through uh, during late Stalinism. This period between 1945 and 1953, Stalin's
2: death. Right. So then Stalin dies, and kind of have the a, a new the new guard comes in under Khrushchev, and we have the famous speech, and he introduces de-Stalinization. So how does how does this kind of affect the myth of the war?
1: Right. So. Immediately when Stalin dies, so yes, Khrushchev uh, delivers his secret speech, which is a partial denunciation of of Stalin's rule and a denunciation of Stalin's cult. He does this uh, in early 1956, but already in 1953, uh, 1954, 1955, during these early years uh, before this, this, this denunciation, You already get efforts uh, to try to commemorate the war on a massive scale. So you get kind of a blueprint created for the establishment of a uh, Soviet Union-wide commemorative cult of the war. Uh, So Zhukov, who becomes the Minister of Defense, for example, issues a memorandum to the party leadership saying that we need to promote the war because we're not celebrating enough and of course the reason they're doing this is this massive uh, authority vacuum or legitimacy legitimacy vacuum created by stalin's death how are we going to fill this vacuum you know and so the war was kind of a the war victory was kind of a natural place to turn various things uh prevents the establishment of this large-scale commemorative cult during these years uh, but it doesn't mean that, that this uh, this idea wasn't wasn't attempted at least. There's financial obstacles, for example. But then, when when Khrushchev decides to denounce these aspects of Stalin, uh, including Stalin's leadership during the war, uh, which he he actually he actually mocks uh, during the secret speech. Uh, when this happens, uh, well, Soviet ideologists have to go back and think, well, what is, you know, now, now they have to deal with this Stalin issue. What, what is Stalin's role? What is his part in the war? How can we rewrite or rethink about the history of, of the Great Patriotic War now that Stalin has been denounced? So there are several years where these ideas, you know, that this challenge is being, being worked out in a series of, of commissions and uh, other uh, forums, um, and what's ultimately what ultimately happens is that once you denounce Stalin, well, you begin denouncing some of the things he, he said or his statements during the war. For example, his appeal to the great ancestors uh, during in 1941, or his toast to the Russian people. So these sort of Russo-centric aspects of the wartime propaganda, um, they are largely discredited by the discrediting of Stalin's cults in these post-1956, and especially uh, post-1961, when you have the 22nd Party Congress, when these matters are really worked out by then. Uh, This is when you get, for example, the renaming of Stalingrad to Volgograd is is in 1961 and so stalin's cold, so the denunciation of Stalin's cold in the process uh discredits this russo centric paradigm, and what the Khrushchev era leadership is left with is this purely internationalist pan soviet uh war uh, myth and, and war narrative. Now the Russian uh, uh, celebration of the Russian past and all that doesn't go away. Uh, however, it's uh, it's confined to issues of pre-revolutionary cultural preservation uh, and, and celebrations of you know pre-revolutionary events like the founding of cities and, and things like this. Uh, but. What, but what they do is they establish a clear separate—and even early Soviet modernization, like the revolution is largely credited to Russian leadership, uh, you know, on this path to modernity, that, that the Russian elder brother was going to bring all these less developed peoples along, uh, you know, so goes this narrative. That that was still possible, but it was, conf- it was separated from the war. The war narrative itself operated as a sort of countervailing ideological current, which really emphasizes— uh, uh, you know, a sort of cross-ethnic, horizontally arrayed, Soviet people, or sovietski narod. And so it really becomes about the Soviet people, this almost monolithic uh, uh, body of, of Soviet citizens waging war uh, against the enemy, as opposed to this more diversified image where you have Russians, Slavs at the top, and everyone else below. So a less hierarchical, more lateral, laterally arrayed version of the war is established uh, under Khrushchev. And this version you know, continues uh, right through uh, to the end of the Soviet Union, uh, more or less.
0: Okay. So
2: we have these two uh paradigms and how do, how do they like when you're writing official history in the Soviet Union how do you address both of them do you focus on one of them after Stalin's life how are how are historians trying to write about the war?
1: Right. So uh, in the early 1960s, actually, so in the aftermath of Khrushchev's secret speech and then picking up again after the 20, 22nd Party Congress in, in 1961, this, these things are overlapping with efforts uh, to rewrite the history of the Communist, par- the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and to rewrite the history of World War II, of the Great Patriotic War. Up until this point, uh, the dominant narratives of these two events were uh, you know, Stalin's short course uh, on the history of the party and also a collection of Stalin's wartime statements and, and writings called On the Great Patriotic War. These are both Stalinist texts that still remain the official uh, party and, and war histories, uh, ra- right through his uh, uh, Stalinist denunciation and, and into the early 1960s. So there was an obvious need to replace these. So what you get in the late 1950s and early 1960s are these commissions that look into this stuff, and they begin writing the history. And any challenges that come up, they uh, debate them, and you know they run them by the party leadership. And it's great because this stuff is all recorded, and so you can you can go into the archives and read transcripts of these various meetings. What I found was there was a clash between those who really valued uh, the kind of Stalinist Russo-centric patriotism of the war years and the more orthodox Marxist-Leninist uh, uh, leaning intellectuals and, and, and party members who wanted a more, this, to, to promote this more internationalist you know, Soviet people uh, version of the war. What these clashes ultimately result in, to make a, a long story <laughs> short. Uh, is that it was decided that the war victory would remain this multinational uh, you know so uh, feat of the soviet people it was the victory was the result of of the revolution and the establishment of the soviet system and 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 especially the leadership of the communist party so and Stalin is completely removed uh, fr- from this version uh, to, to to an extent and on the other side you have people saying well, no well, we should be proud of of russia 's history and all, and all of this stuff. Uh, the, the the compromise that's achieved here is that the celebration of Russian history, the Russian past, was to be as compartmentalized as possible. So they established, you know, in, in the later in the nineteen sixties, you establish this all all uh, all Russian uh, society for the preservation of historical monuments uh, and, and so on. And so there was a, a on the one hand a kind of celebration of the Russian past for uh, uh, for itself, uh, and then on the other hand you have this other. Uh, narrative that, that really downplayed the role of the Russian people, and so I can show you in, as they're as they're drafting the new history of uh, the six volume history of World War of the Great Patriotic War, uh, you know, so they they'll come up to say Stalin's toast. What do we do about Stalin's toast? How do we write about it? And I, I can actually see some of the early versions. Of, I think I reprinted one in, in, in my book. You can actually see an early draft where the, uh, uh, an initial version of, of this history of the fifth volume uh, quotes Stalin's toast uh, 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 completely. And then a later editor comes in, they re- decide to remove the whole thing and they leave notes about why they're removing it, because this does not adhere to the uh, current version of the war a- 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 as it stands. And so they, you can see them sort of removing all this Russo-centric stuff. And in other commissions, they talk about, well, we, we're already talking about Russian greatness in the context of the pre-revolutionary era. And the early, uh, 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 you know, from from early years after 1917, why do we need to emphasize Russian greatness in the war? In fact, that works against us. We need this other thing. We need this countervailing pressure to all this Russo-centrism of the Soviet state. And we're going to focus all that countervailing, you know, internationalist uh, messaging within the war narrative itself. And so that's the decision that comes out of these series of rewriting uh, the history of the war, of the party, uh, and, and so on.
2: Right. Very interesting. So the Russians are celebrated for pre-war revolutionary stuff, and in the war, it becomes all about the the pan multi ethnic Soviet Union.
1: Yes, and so these are almost even though they both promote they're they're geared toward promoting you know social stability, social unity, but in very different ways. The Russocentric uh, stuff, you know that that presented an image of of. The, this, the USSR is a highly hierarchical uh, 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 state where you have, you know, greater and lesser peoples, Russians on top and and, and so on. Uh, the war narrative presented a more laterally arrayed, uh, almost a, a nation like or nationalizing entity where uh, homogeneity was really promoted over this idea of sort of a variegated hierarchy of peoples.
2: OK, so how was the uh, war Memorialized or celebrated in the for the twentieth anniversary, uh, marking the twentieth anniversary of the end of the war.
1: Yeah, so you know, a, a lot of scholars, scholars have long pointed out that with the twentieth anniversary of a Victory Day, a, a victory in nineteen sixty five, this really marks the the birth of this uh, so called cult of World War Two in, in Russia the reason is it's it's victory day is is made a non working holiday once again uh, if it, it eventually becomes kind of the largest uh, celebration of the Soviet era, you can actually you can actually compare uh, minutes of plannings for around the the, the Bolshevik Revolution uh, uh, anniversary with the anniversary of Victory Day. And by the '70s, uh, they're already calling, up we need to make the Victory Day celebration longer than the celebration of the Revolution." So you really see the war myth play an outsized role beginning in around 1965. And I'll say there's all sorts of reasons for this. Uh, One of them, you know, you could argue is is sort of more is almost transnational. So you have this larger issue of the 1960s. You have a a shift in generations. Uh, This is these are these are things that are happening in in all industrial societies. So this shift of generation, of course, plays a major role in in the 1960s protests in the United States, in in West Germany, in, in, in France. And so on. And and a lot of the subtext of these uh, 1960s protests are the war, looking back at World War Two, you know, what were our parents doing the war, uh, doing during the war, you know, were they were they collaborators and and so on. So the war is really present there uh, in these larger 1960s movements. It's also at this time when you get the rise of, of Jewish memory, you know, with the Eichmann trial and Auschwitz trials, uh, the Six-Day War, you know, later. Uh, so, so the rise of, of Jewish memory, uh, this also plays into the, the sort of reconsiderations of World War II uh, internationally. In the Soviet Union, you have all these pressures as well. Uh, of course, uh, their response to it is, is, is to clamp down on society. You know, it's, it's, it's still an authoritarian society we're talking about. But they also utilized the war's memory in a patriotic way to kind of contain all of these pressures. Uh, domestically, though, there's other stuff going on as well. And as Khrushchev and as the sort of Russocentric paradigm, uh, the Russocentrism of Stalin was uh, denounced, Um, you get a lot of uh, intellectuals, a lot of uh, Russian sort of nationalist sympathizers. A lot of these people are are in the party. Uh, You get them complaining that what are we going to base patriotism on if we're getting rid of a thousand years of Russian history? How can we have a patriotic Soviet narrative that gets rid of all of that? And so the decision that's taken in the early 1960s is, well, let's double down on on the World War II victory as a theme. Right? So with the World War II victory, there's a lot of stuff there that overlaps with Russian nationalist concerns, right? like the focus on patriotism, uh, the celebration of, of homeland or, or, or fatherland or motherland, uh, uh, and especially the dissemination of these sort of patriotic values among the Soviet youth. These are all things that overlapped with Russian nationalist priorities, but that did not sort of dredge up the old czarist past, you know, and so they doubled down on the war as a way to, as a sort of patriotic compromise to settle all of these tensions. And a lot of Russian nationalists bought into it. They said, well, okay, well, we can't celebrate, uh, you know, these, these uh, Alexander Nevsky's victory over the te- Teutonic Knights and connect that to World War II. But what we can do is celebrate World War II, uh, uh, you know, wholeheartedly and, and teach our, 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 our children and, and the youth of this country, the, the future generations about what patriotism is all about through this World War war ii narrative
2: right so you did you briefly touched on it so these people individuals intellectuals who supported the russo-centric paradigm how did they did they disappear did they keep underground during the the 60s and into the 70s what happened to them
1: Yeah, it's a great question. They do not disappear. Uh, And in fact, there were sort of different uh, categories of Russophile or Russian, you know, as I call them, Russocentric nationalists. These are people who are, are in the 1960s and 70s, are basically rejecting Khrushchev's uh, formulation for this sort of pan-Soviet war narrative, and Brezhnev's as well, I, I should say. And so what they do is, uh, well, first of all, you have a, you know, you already have a big sort of Samizdat, you know, underground publishing uh, network. A lot of these Russian nationalists move to underground publications. And these uh, underground publications are are fascinating uh, because what are they saying? Well, they're saying this, uh, 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 that the, that the, the, the Russian people won the war. In spite of the the Communist Party, in spite of Stalin, in spite of so it's a very anti-Soviet kind of uh, of messaging. Uh, and look, uh, why did Stalin have to resurrect Russian national imagery during the war? Why did that happen? Well, obviously it's because Marxism Leninism has no uh, nothing to be patriotic about, or the Soviet state has nothing to be patriotic about. It you can't mobilize a whole society around you know Marxist Leninist ideals or, or, or whatever. Uh, so these people are writing in underground journals, and uh, it's uh, eventually they, they go really hard on the war, and, and most of these journals are shut down. Some of the leaders of these journals, some of the authors of these underground pieces are put into long uh, prison sentences, uh, and, and so on. Now, the less radical ones, the ones who tried to... Uh, uh, who tried to sort of uh, create a narrative of the war that celebrated kind of very subtly Russian ideas, uh, but they didn't, but they wanted to do it in a pro-Soviet way. Uh, they were allowed a brief publishing run in the late 1960s in nationalist-oriented journals like uh, Malaya Gvardia and later Nash Sovremennik. Uh, these nationalist-oriented journals they tried to craft a kind of heroic narrative that could that could evoke sort of Russian national pride. What's interesting about reading these things is the way that they censor themselves. So they'll say something like, "Ooh, the Russian uh, here, the Russian Russia, the Russians have always been a heroic nation. You know, look at all these." Events from the past, and then they'll they'll give a a, a a completely different account of World War II. They'll say, uh, but World War II was won by the the by the, the founding of the Soviet system, by the multinational uh, friendship of the peoples, by this multinational coterie of, of, of Soviet people, and so on. So they'll talk about Russian history in really glowing terms, and then they'll get to the World War II narrative, and they'll completely stay silent on anything having to do with Russia. Whether so, it looks very awkward on the. Page. I, I give uh, some examples in the book, uh, and so so you've got this sort of Russian nationalistic narrative of the past. Then you get to the war, and it's a very you know orthodox uh, Marxist Leninist reading of the war, pan-Soviet reading of the war, and then they move on, you know, and, and you know revel more in sort of Russian national triumphs of the past and so on. So it's a very awkward fit. Uh, Most of these publications are also shut down eventually after they, uh, and and really over when they try to revive Stalin as a kind of, you know, Stalin was of course Georgian, but he was seen by a lot of these people as a uh, defender of Russian national culture and history and values. And so when they try to bring Stalin back into the picture, that's a bridge too far. And, uh, most of these uh, journals and their editors are, uh, uh, simply, these are, these are, they're not shut down, but they're given, given over to new leadership and they're put under tighter constraints. Um, but you get continual challenges, you know, people trying to write a narrative of uh, a Soviet narrative of the war that that is able to celebrate the Russian, uh, people, you get a few in the late 19, uh, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s. So for example, Vladimir Chevalikin's, uh, giant historical epic, uh, called Pamyat or memory. Uh this, this is a, another attempt, and this is 1980 now, this is another attempt to try to resurrect this Russocentric paradigm, and, and, and it also fails. And actually, if you read it and, and the notes behind it, you can see that really, they never attempted seriously to make, to russify the war. They love surrounding this Soviet internationalist war myth with Russian themes from the distant past, but they were never able to connect these two things in anything like a coherent uh, manner. So, but yeah, but these continual challenges are there. This Russian national, uh, this desire for a more Russian-centered, uh, Russian-dominated narrative of the war, it, it never it is completely suppressed. It, it re- remains at the margins of Soviet culture, I should say.
2: Okay. I mean, it makes complete sense. I mean, Russia is the biggest nation, I guess, in the Soviet Union. So, in um, so. The Russian nationalism, you write talks, you know, comes back a bit strong in the early 1980s. Uh, why Why did it come back then?
1: So in the early 1980s, there's a few things going on. Um, there, uh, the, the main reason, I should say, that Yitzhak Brudny has, has, has written a, a lot about this, and it's fairly convincing that the Soviet war in Afghanistan, for example, which was launched in, in December uh, 1979, that this... This conflict uh, led the leadership to conclude that we need to kind of stoke any sort of patriotism we can get again, and so there's this brief moment when kind of really highly Russocentric uh, narratives are promoted. Now I should say that they don't hardly ever touch the World War II myth, um, but there was a there was an increase in this kind of pre-revolutionary celebration. Uh, one example in the year 1980 Uh, also there was this is an era of growing international tensions for all sorts of reasons right you get the boycott of the moscow olympics and everything and so it was seen that that uh, the, the the continued promotion of Russian national themes during these years was a way to counterbalance a lot of the the residual sort of influences of of detente with the West. You know, they didn't want Western culture creeping in, uh, and so th- so this is why you see this spike in sort of Russian national uh, narratives uh, during these years. But but again, so speaking of the pre-revolutionary past, in 1980, this happens to be the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Kulikova. Uh, field and this is uh, when uh, uh, you know Dmitry Donskoy defeats uh, the Mongol Tartars. Uh, it's, it's a very important date in in Russian history, and. Interestingly, in 1980, a group of, of Russian, uh, I guess I'd call them cultural nationalists, they, they they plead with the Communist Party to let us celebrate this event on a massive scale. Let us reconstruct the battle site of Kulikova. And so there's this cultural preservation movement that emerges around this Kulikova anniversary. And it's it creates, this produces this sort of debate and discussion with the party leadership creates really fascinating documentation. So you get the party leaders like Suzlov talking to a uh, uh, some of the leadership of, of this uh, cultural organization that wants to uh, head up this commemoration of this this past battle, um, you get a, a fascinating discussion where they're saying just don't let this turn into a Russian nationalist uh, rally, and of course the leadership is saying oh of course yeah we'll make sure we don't it does, that does not happen, and they also are talking about don't let this touch the World War II uh, victory narrative, and so even during this Kulikova anniversary when it, it would. And again, where where Kolokova is situated, this is also a a site that saw a lot of uh, fighting during World War II. And so it it would be very natural to kind of connect these things for for locals. But you get a very intensive uh, uh, monitoring by the party that we're not going to connect this distant, the 600-year-old battle, uh, which was a kind of proto-Russian battle. We're not going to connect that with the World War II victory, which needs to remain Soviet. So again, you see these tensions forming. But what's interesting to me is that uh, the insistence on the part of the Soviet state, that even when they're using and kind of stoking uh, Russian nationalistic sentiment, the war kind of remains a sacrosanct narrative. This needs to be a Soviet thing. This needs to, be, uh, to, to reflect the, you know, the, the, the power, the strength of the Soviet system, and most of all, the sort of monolithic unity of the Soviet people.
2: Right, I mean, makes complete sense with the the Afghanistan war in this uh, anniversary. Um, did the the subordination of the Russian centric paradigm or Russian nationalism in celebrating I don't know or marking World War II does it play a role in the end of the USSR?
1: Yes, I I would say, uh, it, it does. What, what what in the sense that. Russians uh, could, you know, from 1985, when Gorbachev comes to power, all of these kind of tensions and, uh, you know, ideological conflicts that were being dealt with behind the scenes, they all burst out to the open. You know, this is a part of a deliberate policy Gorbachev believed in, in Glasnost, you know, this, this openness that, that we need to be more frank about, especially the Stalinist past, And so he allowed uh, a lot of these uh, Russian nationalists, uh, not just sort of hardcore Russian nationalists, but also uh, Russian liberals, you know, people who uh, were trying to redefine and challenge the old Soviet uh, myth of the war. He allowed these debates to burst out into the open. And the way this impacts the collapse of the Soviet Union is that, yes, uh, there was a lot of, uh, obviously, nationalist uh, agitation uh, toward the end of the Soviet Union, uh, which contributed to the collapse, of course. But who's the people that you think are going to identify most closely with the Soviet state? Naturally, it's going to be the Russian people, right, who were always treated as this kind of uh, uh, state-bearing, central uh, community uh, of people. Well, what happens is, Uh, By the end of the 1980s, even Russians are not really identifying uh, that they can identify with the war. You know, they they still think it was a great feat in their national history. But less and less is that war victory attributed to uh, any connection with the Soviet state. And so I, I think while this is not why the Soviet Union collapsed, I think it is a kind of precondition to have a narrative of the war that Gorbachev was staunchly defending that downplayed the Russian people, and to have that tension out in the open with with uh, Russian nationalists, but also Russian ni- liberals, people who wanted to uh, 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 you know to challenge this old Soviet myth that they that this, this these myths were no longer compatible with each other. So you have the Soviet myth still there. You have this kind of Russian myth, uh, a, a variety actually of Russian myth, uh, war myths emerging at this time. Uh, but the point is, uh, Russians were no longer willing to defend the Soviet state, and this connection of the with the war was was really not not very strong. Uh, you know, I should say in the ni- late 1980s, uh, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, uh, which had long been suppressed, is it, finally released in the Soviet Union. One of Grossman's major themes in that book is this tension. So he argued that the war turned this Marxist society into basically a, a celebration of Russian exceptionalism and things like this. Um, and that throughout, throughout the novel, you get people challenging, well, why are we celebrating Russian leaders from the past, right? Isn't this you know, aren't we, aren't we communists, right? Aren't aren't we good Leninists? So Grossman really points to these tensions in his novel. When it comes back out in the 1980s, during some of the debates over Grossman's novel, uh, this point is made very clear that, uh, uh, you know, that the the Soviet myth of World War II really uh, is is not a a celebration of of Russia or the Russian people, though the Russian people often did see it that way. So you get this increasing separation between the Russian people and the Soviet state, and I argue that this does play a role. Uh, in the eventual collapse uh, of the Soviet Union.
2: Right. So has with the end of the Soviet Union, um, does is the celebration of the or the anniversary of the war that you see pretty much every year on TV at Red Square, is this only Russian or do they still try to make it uh, in some ways connected to former uh, nations that were in the Soviet Union?
1: Yeah. So, so under Putin, uh, Putin especially, uh, you get this revised war myth. Uh, really what Putin does is he try, he's trying to resurrect this old Russo-centric uh, uh, paradigm, this old Russo-centric narrative of the war that had long been suppressed. However, with Stalin's role largely excised, Stalin obviously is still very popular in Russia today, mainly for his role in the war. And I think Putin is trying to watch, walk a balance here with not not revising Stalin or Stalinism or anything like that, but trying to resurrect that Russo-centric narrative, uh, largely uh, you know celebrating the Russian people and its connection to its past. So, of course, Victory Day is is, the, is now the most important public holiday uh, and source of, of national pride and, and identity to some extent. Um, and, and but what, one of Putin's major projects uh, has been to. Uh, situate the achievements of the Soviet era, and really we're talking about the World War II victory within a larger historical context, right? So Putin is trying to connect the World War II victory to a thousand years of Russian history. And this Putin led resurgence of, of the myth of victory, which uh, as he saw it, you know, could kind of bridge the country's deep economic, ethnic, and political divides, a- a- has served as the cornerstone to this kind of nation building project. So post-Soviet Russia has seen kind of the tensions I, I talk about in the book uh, reproduced uh, to a large extent in, in kind of a divide between a civic territorial sense of Russianness, uh, uh, which is called Russischi, uh, and an ethnic kind of Ruski uh, conception of, of Russian nationhood, that, as well as kind of in a more recent idea of a transnational uh, Ruski mir or Russian world. So from the perspective uh, of of Russia, the Russian state, uh, this certainly would include former Soviet republics, uh, who, depending on their acceptance or rejection of the current Russian myth of the war, are treated like, on the one hand, ungrateful Nazi sympathizers, so we could think about Ukraine today, or close allies who recognize and acknowledge Russian leadership and salvation during the war. So notwithstanding this vastly differing political and ideological context between the Soviet era and and, and what's happening today, uh, I I argue that the impulse uh, behind the Kremlin's frequent appeals to the war victory as a sort of elastic source of of patriotism and patriotic identity, and, and also as a source of legitimacy on the international stage. So as we just saw with the justification of the invasion of Ukraine, right, the war was was everywhere in that, or war war rhetoric and so on. All of this, uh, I argue, is a product of the Soviet era.
2: Right. Well, we've taken up, uh, a lot of your time, so I'd like to ask you now the traditional last question: is that, and that is, uh, what are you uh, working on next or now? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of close there with uh, the way World War Two is, is constantly invoked and, in, 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 you know, also in the context of military interventions. My new project actually looks at historical analogies and comparisons in times of war uh, uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, so, for example, I, I, I look at the way uh various military interventions in the Cold War were were treated like, you know, th- this stuff with the invasion of Ukraine being a fight against Nazis. This has a very old history. Uh, every Soviet in- intervention, uh, you know, it, it, of the Cold War era is kind of framed as a repeat of World War Two. Right? we're going to defeat fascists, and that's how it begins. Even Afghanistan, uh, you get a lot of these echoes of World War II rhetoric at the very beginning. What happens is and, uh, is you get uh, analogies that challenge this World War II framing uh, pop up in these interventions. So I'll just give one example. Uh, and, and so my new project, it looks into these analogies. But So for example, during the Soviet-Afghan War, I'm focusing heavily on the way that this was started as kind of a repeat of, the, of World War II in a kind of weird sort of way, at least in Soviet propaganda. But over time, soldiers and citizens and, and even policymakers uh, uh, in the Kremlin uh, came to compare Afghanistan with the, the Vietnam War, right? It's almost a cliche that, that Afghanistan was the Soviet Vietnam, but I look at the in, impact and importance of this analogizing uh, throughout the, the late Cold
2: War. Oh, it sounds really fascinating. Uh, Thank you. But and uh, well, that's about it for this time. So um, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'd like to hope uh, hope you success on your new project.
1: Thanks a lot. Good to see you again.